I don't know if any of you get the Times newspaper um, at all. Um, we tend to get it about once a week at the weekend. And there's, a, there's an interview every Saturday in uh, the weekend section, I think it is. Um, and it's called My Culture Fix. And they, they interview some famous person, someone from the world of the arts or something. And they, they ask them uh, things like, you know, what, what are you enjoying watching on TV? What kind of films do you like? What are you reading? What shows do you go to? And one of the last questions in that little sort of page, that feature every week, is imagine you are hosting a fantasy dinner party and you can invite whichever famous people you want to invite. Who would you invite to dinner? And um, you often get some kind of random answers. They say things like, oh, Leonardo da Vinci and Mozart, Kim Kardashian, Jurgen Klopp or something, anything. That's going to be a weird dinner, isn't it, with all those people together? And sometimes, from time to time, uh, someone gives a kind of religious answer. There's someone, uh, someone religious in there. But I wonder, who, who would you invite? If you could invite, say, half a dozen uh, people, famous people, and have them round for dinner, who would you go for? And would you invite Jesus as one of your six? Um, in the Gospels, Jesus, he's always, um, it seems to be, eating with someone, doesn't he? Uh, he often gets invitations to dinner, and he pretty much always seems to accept them. But you do have to wonder sometimes if the people who invited him realize what they're getting themselves into when they ask him to come for a meal. And that is certainly the case, isn't it, with this Pharisee that we've just heard about in Luke chapter 11, who invites Jesus to dinner. And presumably, he has no idea the kinds of things Jesus is going to say when he gets there. But I want to suggest that in what Jesus says here, and behind the reason that he is clearly very angry with these people he's at dinner with, are two particular things. The first one, that Jesus, as he so often is, is far more concerned with what is going on in people's hearts on the inside than on the front that they manage to present to the world, the show that they put on in public. Uh, and secondly, that he came, and he says this in lots of different ways in the Gospels, in so many uh, different occasions, he came to relieve people of their burdens, to help people who are struggling. Uh, and it makes him rightly angry that those who are supposed to be guiding his people seem to be making it harder for the strugglers and not easier. I'm sure most of us have probably heard of the Pharisees. Uh, they were religious, they were respectable. I guess they had a certain amount of social status in that first century world, and they knew their Bibles really well. And so to begin with, uh, it's probably worth saying this is a, a passage to approach with a little bit of humility if you're someone who others might call religious, perhaps especially if you're a religious leader, like a vicar or someone like that. Um, there is a warning in here about how easy it is to become a Pharisee. Now, the dinner doesn't start well because Jesus doesn't wash before the meal and the Pharisee notices. And so the first thing to say is that this is not about Jesus turning up, up dirty. It's not that he smells or has bad hygiene and could do with a good shower and a spray of right guard or something like that. It's about ceremonial washing instructions, which the Pharisees were really hot on. Again, as some of you will know. Not the sort of things that we learned during the pandemic. You know, wash your hands while you was it sing happy birthday twice or something. And someone said a religious version would be say the Lord's Prayer, which is maybe slightly concerning when you read a passage like this one, although I think it was done for the right reasons. For the Pharisees, there were particular ways you had to wash to prepare for a meal uh, with the right amount of water, a kind of way of removing the uncleanness of a sinful world. 
as you sat around the table, as if a bit of water could actually do that. In one sense, there's no harm in having a symbol like that to represent what we need God to do for us. But it's what they did with it. Because as we see from what Jesus says, these Pharisees were all about rules, uh, outward appearances. But again, for Jesus, this is all about what is on the inside. And so this comes out in a variety of ways in what Jesus says with these woes that he delivers to the Pharisees and to the teachers in the law. Um, the first one is that, and hopefully this will come up on the screen, and it's not at the moment. We've got slides up, Rob. Mm, let's try this again. There we go. Jesus says we are like a cup, a nice, clean, shiny cup that is dirty on the inside while clean on the outside. There's nothing like discovering a mug, is there, on a windowsill or somewhere that's been standing there for a few days, a little bit of tea or coffee in the bottom, just getting worse and worse. Although actually there is something worse. It's when you get a, a bowl that's had cereal in it and there's a bit of milk in the bottom and the cornflakes are kind of stuck like concrete around the inside, even while it looks clean uh, on the outside. And yes, members of my family will tell you that I have been known to complain about these things from time to time. Well, Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're like a bowl like that, like that mug. You look civilized and presentable. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of greed and full of wickedness. They're about appearances. They're about what a person does, what they're seen to do. But Jesus is about substance. He's about what is underneath, who we are. Now, of course, these things are, are not always unrelated, and they ought to be related but they're not the same thing. Jesus says, you foolish people, verse 40, God makes both of those things, the inside and the outside. He sees them both. And in verse 41, Jesus adds, but now, as for what is inside you, if you really want to be clean, be generous to the poor. Not meaning give a few pounds to charity to prove how righteous you are, but let what is in your heart flow out of you into how you treat people because God sees what's going on in there. The first thing he says is, you're like a cup. Um, the second thing is the tithe, or the tenth. So we've got some coins. Um, tithing, again, as many of you will know, is the practice of giving 10% of what you have, of your income typically, to the work of God. It's a good thing in the Bible. It's commanded in the Old Testament as a joyful offering, as a response to God's generosity to us and his love to his people. But again, it's, possi it's possible to tithe because you've made a rule, because of following instructions to the letter of the law. possible to make sure everyone knows that that's what you're doing, rather than doing it from your heart. Uh, in many ways, Pharisees who tithe like that can easily be the people who keep churches going. Um, I guess that was the case in the, the first century. It can probably still be the case today. Uh, very easy to think that someone has ticked the generosity box They've carefully gone through what they need to do. They've made sure that they've done it to the letter. Uh, and they've you know, filled in the form, set up the standing order, and now they can move on. You know, job done. Bish, bash, bosh, as another vicar might have said. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of everything, but you neglect justice and the love of God. See, what they're doing, it's all about show. It's all about rules. It's not about heart. And once again, Jesus adds, you should have practiced the former without neglecting the latter. 
It's not saying it's bad to give 10%. It's bad to be generous financially. Of course, that's a great thing to do. But he's saying, look, if it's just a cold rule, if you're just doing this to keep up appearances, then it's deadly. That's not the reason we should live as we live. It's whether you care about justice and about love. So it's about attitudes. Again, the inside, not the outside. It's about mercy and not just orthodoxy. And we can fall into this kind of habit, this kind of trap again with all kinds of things, can't we? Um, we, can, we could do it with money, like the Pharisees did here. Uh, we could do it with religion, with our Bible reading. You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to feel pleased with ourselves if we've set up a kind of daily Bible reading plan, maybe even a read the Bible in a year plan. And we get to a certain point, get past January, still going, big pat on the back, and we feel pleased with ourselves. Again, there's a sense in which that's right, isn't it? But how easy it is for our motives to get all twisted and for us to get the wrong end of the stick. You know, we can have theology that is thought through and clear and right, but if we fail to care for the poor or for the hurting, then we're not doing what Jesus calls us to do. And the church often struggles with this, doesn't it? There's this balance which Jesus encapsulates perfectly between truth and love and how very easy it is for us to end up tipping that balance. It's not really a balance. It's two things which are interwoven together. And either you know, neglect the truth or to be so sure that we've got to get it right that we end up not loving people in the way that we do things. Jesus says you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's not either or. It's not truth or mercy. Lord, save us from having a right theology or an impressive religion but a cold heart. Um, that's the cup and the coin. Um, the third one is um, the, the kind of status that's represented by having the best seat in the house. Verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Um, these days, not many people want the front row seats, do they? Very grateful to have you here, Mark. Always grateful to have Marianne and Brian because they like to sit near the front. Most of us, I probably include myself in this, um, quite like sitting near the back when we get the chance to do that, don't we? But whether it's seats or something else, there are all kinds of ways in claiming a little bit of, of status for ourselves, aren't they? Um, we all enjoy having people look at us and, and admire us or look up to us or uh, whatever it is, to be noticed and respected. And I guess it's worth saying again, in a church, the more responsibility uh, or seniority that you have in the way that the church is set up, the more this can be a danger or a risk to you. So there's, there are warnings here to, to people who lead home groups, sing in the band, and to people who are on the PCC, perhaps. And I want to say probably more than any others to people like me, you know, with our collars that we sometimes wear, regardless of whether we're wearing the clothes, that, that there is that responsibility, that sense of being in authority. The Pharisees are proud. But Jesus is all about being humble, despite the fact that uh, he is worthy of more respect than anyone else. And better to be humble, verse 44, than to be an unmarked grave which people are walking over without even noticing it. Which sounds like a bit of a strange insult, doesn't it? I guess we probably wouldn't be bothered too much about knowing that we'd accidentally walked on a grave. Maybe some people would, a little bit superstitiously. But the Pharisees knew what he was talking about. Uh, in the Old Testament laws, uh, if you came into contact with death in any way, then that made you unclean and you had to be separated from the worshipping community for at least seven days. So you, you, know, you mustn't touch a dead body. 
In fact, you couldn't even be in a tent with someone or something that had died. And if you touched a grave or stepped on a place where someone had been buried, that would have the same effect. And so graves tended to be very clearly marked so that you couldn't do it by accident. But Jesus says, you Pharisees, by all your rules and your teaching, by your lack of love and care for people, you're like walking on unmarked graves. You're supposed to be ones who introduce people to God and to the healing that he loves to give. But instead, you just make people worse. You make them rule keepers instead of God lovers. And you end up causing people to fall away from God when you should be leading them. Well, to me, he says, to Jesus. It's a pretty painful dinner party, isn't it, at this point? Um, Pretty uncomfortable and awkward. Now, there are some others in the room, as well as the Pharisees. And at this point, we discover in verse 45, they're feeling a bit edgy. Uh, They are the experts in the law. Um, They were often associated with the Pharisees. They were kind of like academic theologians. Good education, passionately orthodox and strict. And they're starting to worry that what Jesus is saying will reflect on them too. The bad news for them is that's exactly what it does because the item that Jesus compares what the, the experts in the law give to people is a very heavy rucksack, a great burden. Verse 46, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you won't even lift a finger to help them. That's the opposite of what a spiritual leader is supposed to do. If you find yourself in any form of leadership in the church, then your job is to help people come to Jesus, know the Lord better, uh, to teach them from the scriptures about the kind of God he is. But instead, these experts, they built up their traditions, they added rules, they laid them on people, they made life hard for them, and they made people feel guilty and ashamed, and then judged them for not keeping all the rules properly. That's why Jesus is angry. He says, you load people down with burdens they cannot carry. And it's not just an empty criticism from Jesus. He follows through, doesn't he? He is the God who does the opposite of load people down with burdens. He's the one who said, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the one who carries our burdens at great cost to himself. And I want to say, actually, if there, if there is anyone here this evening, and maybe you've been coming to church for years, but if you've ever been put off by religion, because it just seems to make you feel worse, to remind you of your failings, uh, it's like having a, a burden added to you. Come to Jesus. He is not like that. That's why we come back, in fact, week by week, isn't it? To come to him, to be reminded of his gentleness. And he just hates it that these people who are supposed to be bringing healing and relief to the strugglers instead of just making life hard for them and then judging them. Because it's the opposite of what Jesus truly offers to people. He's already on his way to the cross. We've seen that in Luke. Several times he's said, this is what's going to happen. And he's going there to carry the burdens of people like you and me who can't carry them ourselves. These leaders say, just keep the rules. Do as we say. Jesus says, come to me and I'll carry it for you. Come to me. So maybe for someone here this evening, that's the main reminder that you need. I know this seems like a bit of a negative passage, doesn't it? Whoa, 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 whoa. I think it's five, isn't it? Didn't count them. 
But actually, when we see Jesus telling them off for what is wrong, it points us to what is right in him. In verses 47 to 51, which we don't have time to look at in detail, he accuses them of killing God's prophets. On the surface, they look like they honor the prophets. They know the scriptures really well. Um, But they refuse to hear what God has said through them. And uh, they don't like it when Jesus says in verse 49, as God in his wisdom says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. But soon they're going to kill Jesus. John the Baptist. You know, Stephen's going to be stoned by people like this. Peter and Paul are going to be persecuted. And all the others. And it's a great warning for us again, just to remember to take seriously what God says through his prophets and through his apostles. And not just to pay lip service. So the final symbol for this evening is in verse 52, and it's this one. It's the key. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you've hindered those who were entering. Quite a criticism, isn't it? These are people who've got expertise. They know all about religion and theology, but they don't know Jesus, the God who it's all about. You've got the key, he says to them. These scriptures which point to me. But you haven't entered through the door. It's really sad. It's really mad. But even worse, you're hiding the entrance from others, he says. You have hindered those who were entering. That is the tragedy of their dry religion, which sounds clever, but doesn't know Jesus. And so from that time on, verse 53, they're out to get him to trap him. They cannot bear what he has said. Well, by God's grace, we still have that key. We have that key to the door of life. Jesus is the key himself. And the scriptures that he's given to us, which point to him, as we were thinking about the other night, if you were here on Tuesday. Um, In the end, our test of faith is whether it leads us to him and to his love. And so here are two things to leave you with, to think about, uh, to pray about, and to take away this evening. First of all, uh, we live in a world, don't we, where it's hard to be faithful to Jesus and to what he said in his word. It's true in our culture quite often. Sadly, it's sometimes true in the wider church as well. If we're people who, who want to stand for and stand by what God has said in his word, which I'm convinced is the right thing to do, then we need to hear Jesus' warning here. Not to become full of rules, not to become hard-hearted, but to be soft towards what God has said. To be soft-hearted, ready to be changed from the inside, and not just to, to create some kind of religious system which makes us feel like we've ticked the box, but actually protects us from showing our true selves to God. That's what the Pharisees did. So one question we might ask ourselves this evening is this. In what way, in what aspect of my life am I most tempted to put on some kind of religious front to try and appear as though I'm sorted to people, to be a bit like a Pharisee? That's one thing. Here's the second thing to leave you with. Some of us are burdened this evening. Our burdens are not on our backs like those rucksacks. Most of them are hidden. Uh, We manage not to show them to others quite often. 
But if that is you, you need to hear once again this evening that Jesus does not load burdens onto people. He lifts them off and he carries them for us. If you're willing to bring them to him, to accept his call and to lay them at his feet. He loves you and that is what he loves to do. He even eats with Pharisees. It's interesting how he does that, isn't it? Even after what they do at the end of his chapter and their increasingly, increasingly aggressive campaigning against him, he still meets them and he still talks to them. There's no sign in the Gospels that they all ended up turning to him. There are little signs that a few of them did. And Nicodemus, for example, who crops up two or three times. And who knows which others? There is no one beyond the reach of Jesus' healing and love. So, Second question, which might be a better one for for others of us, is this. What is the burden that you need to bring to Jesus this evening? Amen.